Hi everyone and welcome back to Creatable Future with me, Ryder Tracy. This is an education podcast for teachers that shines light on critical skills for the future and connects them to the classroom. For the last few weeks, we've been taking a deep dive into evaluation. This week, we're really excited to be joined by Russell Howcroft. Many of you will know him from his work on Gruen. He's also a highly successful businessman, radio presenter, and an evaluative thinking and critical thinking black belt. Thanks for joining us, Russell. G'day, Ryder. Thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So it's no news to you that a a good ad isn't just one that wins awards. It's a good ad is one that sells products. What what we've seen in education recently is a big push for for targets and standardised testing and this idea. And there's a bit of a maxim floating around at the moment that a lot of the work we're doing is hitting the target but missing the point of what we're trying to do. And I just wanted your kind of reflection from your experiences uh, in and around like advertisements and ads and, and, and if you see that in, in your world. That's a very interesting question, Ryder. Um, hitting the target but missing the point. In the education sector, um, I think like what, what is the point is perhaps something which um, that, that in itself is interesting to reflect on. So what is the point of education? And I can imagine there'd be a huge amount of debate around that very thing. Advertising is far simpler. What is the point? The point is to sell. Right. This is why I've always said that um, advertising is at the honest end of the communication game because um, an, an ad's purpose is very clear. It's very clear to everyone. When you see or read or hear an advertisement, you know the point, uh, the point being to get the consumer to acquire. Now, there is, there is some nuance to all of that. You, you might be a, There might be a health campaign, and a health campaign is to get them to buy something less, for example, reduce the sugar in their, in their diet. Or there might be an, an election campaign whose point is to get you to vote for a party or an a individual as opposed to another. Clarity around the point, though, is pretty interesting. Uh, and I can imagine that in the world of education, what is the point would be something that could take up Many hours of conventions. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We can get everyone in together and we can debate the virtues of each piece. But I think, I think what is safe to say, Russell, would be that the time of, of short-term memory and recall and, and reproducing that in an exam, you know, the time of memorising the periodic table, you know, is something that we can access in our pockets, you know, uh, pretty easily, you know, which lends us to the idea of uh, the ability to consume, you know, all of this media that's coming and evaluate it to make the best kind of decision moving forward. I, I wonder when you see an ad, you know, and I know you've got so many other facets um, that I want to delve into later on, but I just want to kind of pick on this point. Uh, when when you see an ad, do you have a gut instinct that it will work or not work? Like, do you have an immediate reaction to it? Yeah, I do. I, you know, it, this may sound tragic, Ryder, but I, when I walk down the supermarket aisle, if I say I feel like the brands actually talk to me, I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> so um, try, I've been trained as, as much as it is innate, but I do think that a big part of it is innate in that I um, feel like I do have a bit of a, uh, a feel for what's going to work and what isn't going to work. There is a nice Venn diagram that you can put in your mind, though, if you're in the business of advertising, and one of them, one of the circles is the advertising professional, so the person who has had, who's got the idea. The other circle is the client, the person that's going to buy the idea, 
And then the third and final circle is the consumer, the person that's going to consume the idea. The bit in the middle, of course, is gold. Um, the bit in the middle being the idea that the agency wants to create. So they, in their heart of hearts, believe it to be right. The client really wants to spend the money on it because they're convinced that it's going to work. And the consumer, when they consume it, absolutely reacts to it. That might sound obvious, but it is really hard to do. So I, I, when I look at advertising, um, and in fact, when I'm trying to sell advertising, I, I always have those three circles. I always have that Venn diagram in my mind. And you can look at an, at an ad and say, okay, I see what's happened. The agency has won the discussion. It's pure agency indulgence. It's only really working on one circle. Um, therefore, it's not likely to work. Right? So there's a bit of a dance. It's a commercial dance between consumer, client, and advertiser. And every now and then, you can just see magic on the dance floor. It's, it is it is much harder to do than you would imagine, though. Wow. Actually, I, I as you were talking... Um, as is, you'll probably think this is tragic, Russell. But um, I was thinking through my school lens, and I was thinking, what's the what's the parallel of that Venn diagram? And I see the teacher with their curriculum in circle one, like the advertiser. I see the student in the consumer circle, and then I see the gold, you know, in the intersection point. And you know, we have the same sort of feeling. You know, occasionally I've done the best lesson ever because the teachers won the engagement battle of what will be presented, and the students, you know, flick to TikTok. Yeah, but it might be it might be three circles because one of the circles might be the department, and then the other circle is the teacher, the school, the teacher, and then the other circle is the consumer, the student. The some of the experience I've had in the education sector, I, I was asked quite quite a long time ago though. This is um, a tertiary institution asked me to be a, a guest lecturer, and when I arrived, they gave me the PowerPoint slides that they wanted me to talk to. And um, to say I was insulted is just, you know, that it's like, well, what's the point, right? Get a computer, get a computer to do it. So I'm imagining that there must be tension around what you know, what you must, what you must educate, what you must teach, because the mission is to get the right score, um, and then the teacher's desire to actually input some of their perspective and their knowledge, their creativity. Um, which, of course, I'm guessing would uh, lead to a better student outcome. So, yeah, I think I think that's the, I think that's probably the three circles. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, like your uh, debate earlier about the point of education, I think that there's a a lot of a lot of paths to go down. But undeniably, at the moment, um, the teacher is seeing things that is good for the student that isn't necessarily coming from the the system circle. Um, and then they're left in a position of, well, how do I prioritise with a finite amount of time? It, it's very, very interesting because you'd also you can also you know to take this further, but you can imagine that the system circle, the the department circle, as far as they're concerned, the teacher circle should be overlaid the same size over the top of that first circle, and the student circle should be overlaid over that circle, right? So we we all need we all need to line up behind the same you know lesson, and it's like, well. I'm not so sure that that's education. Well, it's it's funny you say that because um, there's some really interesting work coming out from the psychology sector at the moment around the idea of of unlearning. I guess traditionally we think of intelligence as the ability to learn, and a lot of our school systems reinforce that by assessing student ability to replicate an idea or regurgitate kind of a fact. But 
in the current psychology literature, what we're seeing is trends around the importance of unlearning and rethinking and having that capacity. Linking back to the to the ad world, have you seen any examples of advertising like a campaign where they're trying to help people unlearn a habit or a belief or have seen any successful approaches to that idea? It's interesting, Ryder, because advertising is formulaic. Part of the creative industry within the world of advertising doesn't like the notion that it's that it's formulaic, but it is, right? And, and and the reason why it is is because it's been proven over, you know, let's call it 100 years of consumerism. It's been various models have been proven to work. Um, and at its most basic, um, the model that works is you articulate the problem, you insert the product as the solution, and then you finish the commercial with the proposition, like why product X solves a problem and things go awry actually when you move off the formula but i do think that in the in the advertising world you've got to be very very careful to break convention everyone wants to break convention they believe that breaking convention is the way to what personal success maybe so yeah you've got to be i am cautious around that one um not, not that I don't want new ideas and not that I won't get excited about new ideas. I, I will and um, and pursue new ideas, but definitely not for the sake of them. It's very interesting. You know, one of the most famous campaigns of all time is the I'm on a horse for Old Spice. Yeah, I'm on a horse. Tibet, that's about 10 years old. It took them, that is the agency, a year to work out the formula that created the Old Spice commercial. It gave them one ad. They then did a follow-up. The follow-up was nowhere near as good as the first one. And that highly creative, incredible cut-through commercial didn't actually create a new formula, advertising formula for Old Spice. It created a moment in time, and that and that moment in time generated fame, but it didn't create a sustainable advertising proposition. <laughs> so when... When you pursue breaking, you know, breaking the glass, who are you doing that for, and does it actually work? Yeah, oh, I love that. Well, you, you, um, I love the story you told there, and it raised something for me. Um, and I wonder if you want to weigh in on on this kind of debate. So, you've obviously huge experience and um, some great published work in and around creativity. You know, um, particularly your right brain work, and so there's two kind of dominant schools of thought around creativity within education there's one which is being creative is about being novel and it can look different in sport to art to you know any kind of discipline and therefore it shouldn't be defined you know it's a thing of in the moment and then there's a second school of thought uh, which goes back to well I need to know where students are at in order to help them know where they're going, you know, so I can provide that feedback, like that kind of structure around it or a, a degrees of progression through it. I just wondered your kind of uh, thinking on that, you know, if you had a position or if it's a combination of the two or what your thoughts were. Creativity uh, should play a role throughout school life. And it's interesting that in year 12, you have to do English. Why not art? Why shouldn't art be a compulsory subject? And the, and the reality is we, we dispose of art very early in our education. And that's art in, a, you know, in as broad a sense as possible. But, but we don't insist that art is 
a big part of um, education. And we should, because I think, right, you would agree with me that if art is with you right up until, let's say, year 12, then you're probably going to be better at maths and better at English as well. There's a real, I think there's a critical need for us to just recalibrate on that front. Uh, Again, why? Well, what's our mission? Our mission is to create people that love learning, uh, people who who are using both sides of their brain, if if we want to simplify it like that. Um, that are both creative and analytical. It's really interesting, isn't it, when you look at um, the uh, NASA and what they did in the 60s to try and find, you know, the super, super individuals that I, I like calling them super, the super freaks, the super freaks that, you know, got, got in a rocket and went, out of, and went into outer space for the first time. You know, That's super freaky. Right, right. And, you know, whose, whose heart rate didn't even get over 100 as they were exiting the atmosphere. <laughs> Those, those individuals, um, Lander, I think, was the person who did the study, did, did the research. He created research that enabled him to find the highly creative and highly analytical individual. Yeah, so that that person, Armstrong, was a brilliant pianist, you know, as well as being as well as being an engineer. So that is the that should be the mission. The mission is everyone's got the right to a full education, and the notion that we stream. The notion that the art person's, uh, you know, oh, that's the arty one. Let's they can go over there in the sandpit, um, and us serious people will just sort of, stay, you know, sit around the classroom doing Excel spreadsheets. In my view, it just happens way, way, way too early. And then when the industry starts talking about STEM, it's all about STEM. You know, let's put the A in there. So STEAM is way more interesting. Um, and I would suspect that you know the if our mission is people that love education, you know, and leave with um, the desire for those light bulb moments and, and a desire to impact and, and, a, and a passion for learning and the ability to both um, draw and add up. Well, what, what a great way to, to leave school. Yeah, here, here. And I think on top of that, you know, you've got the content disciplines and then you've got a, there's a whole slew of mindsets too, to be able to engage with that. You know, you're talking about your being evaluative, you know, being able to draw upon perseverance, being reflective, being, you know, influential, all of those things that sit there, super important. I couldn't agree more. Uh, actually, one, one thing which I think is is interesting is uh, you were talking about at the start, you know, the periodic table is something you don't need to learn. But again, I reckon that's an interesting one because it's true. Um, Google means we don't ac- actually have to remember anything. Is that good? Is it good that the discipline of ensuring that I, that I remember things because I don't actually have to have that discipline anymore? It's It's how we all behave now. You know, if we go, okay, so who won the premiership in 1984? We don't really tax our mind. We just go straight to Google. Is that a good thing? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because the definitely the discipline and the, the, the learning for learning's sake and the, for want of a better expression, the mental workout, you know, you're putting your brain as a muscle through the flex of being able to have the capacity to do when needed, you know, is definitely, definitely valuable. You know, the question is, when, how, to what degree and what things, you know, and and to what outcome, you know, which is a a really interesting debate too. I think it's one that we need to empower our teachers to have the capacity to challenge in their context, you know, like because not every student, funnily enough, is the same and not every pathway, you know, to that being successful 
post life, you know, post uh, school life, you know, is going to be the same pathway. There's a pretty interesting, I wouldn't recommend to any teachers listening to do this, but if you took, you know, a group of 10 year olds out and you asked them to uh, stand in height order, they could do it in two seconds. If you ask them to stand in age order, you know, one second, they know when each other's birthdays are. If you ask them to stand in mathematical ability, they actually will do that really quickly too, Russell. You know, what they'll do is they'll stand in order of uh, uh, numeracy recall. You know, this student's been putting their hand up. They know what six eights are quicker than anyone else in the room. So they're at the top end. This kid clocks out. When you get to creativity and you ask them to stand in a line in creativity order, it's very difficult. What, what ends up happening is the first two or three kids at the top of the tree are the kids that can like realistically draw or they have some sort of musical component, you know, that sits there. Um, and then there'll be a whole heap of people who are potentially introverted, you know, or, or don't like the kind of the showcase perspective of creativity and therefore they self-nominate that they're down that end. And then when you take those same people and you put them into jobs, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, one of those people at the bottom end of the line most might be the most creative engineer of all time, you know, and we need that creativity in every facet. So it's a really challenging, uh, challenging for teachers to be empowered to build that sense of self-belief and capacity to do, yeah. Very, it, it seems to me, I was listening to, um, I just used Google then to make sure I got the school right. I was listening to an um, English headmistress. The school is called the Michaela Community School. And it is having some really significant in, impact in the UK. And they, they it's very disciplined school. Um, and she'll tell you why the, the, the discipline, the main reason why it's so disciplined is because they want every moment to be a teaching moment. And they treat every, they don't stream, they treat every child as having the ability to reach significant heights. So they, they don't make any effort to aim down. They make every effort for the kid to aim high. And they're having really incredible results. Um, and so look into that if you haven't. Um, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-A, Michaela Community School. Really interesting. Oh, excellent. We'll have to have her on and have a talk and unpack it in great yeah. detail. Yeah. 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 Ah. Oh. That's fantastic. No, no talking, no talking in the corridors. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> right? Yeah, no talking in the corridors. It's like, gee, that seems a bit weird. No, because when the bell goes off for the end of the lesson, if you let talking happen in the corridors, they'll still be talking when they get into the classroom, and then the teacher's got to spend the first 10 minutes trying to get them to stop talking, <laughs> right? And then she's calculated how much time, how much teaching time is wasted over the course of a week, a month, a term. And as a result, all their all their scores have all improved simply because you're not allowed to talk in the corridor. <laughs> it's great stuff. Wow. <laughs> yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. We had a really interesting conversation with Catherine McClellan, uh, who was the Chief Deputy Officer at uh, Australian Council for Education Research. And she'd done some fascinating work on teacher talk time, you know, and just by reducing the amount of time uh, on instruction and replacing it with time on task was having similar results. So I, I really can resonate with that. Russell, I'm going to finish with one question for you. Um, if if you could in a, and you're probably the person that could actually do this with, with your reach and advertising acumen, but if you could get one message or one lesson to every 10-year-old in the world, you know, globally, you know, we're talking Burundi, East Timor, developing nations and Australia, of course, 
But what what would it be? What would that one lesson be? What would you want them to carry with them for the rest of their life? Well, just 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 be the person that gets in that rocket. Um, the the steely determination, the bravery, courage, the fact you can have a heart rate below hundred when you go through the Earth's atmosphere, the fact that you can both be a super pianist and great engineer, and frankly have the guts. <laughs> that's what that's what everyone should aim to do. Thank you so much for your time and, and also for all the work that you do, entertaining all of us, but the great work that you do behind the scenes that lots of people don't see. Um, you know, really um, huge amount of gratitude and respect for not just what you do, but the way you do it, Russell. So thank you. Cheers, Rod. I appreciate that. Russell was so clear and passionate that everything he said deserves surmising. The three strong takeaways for me were firstly, the parallels between teaching gold and advertising gold. They're both born out of relevance and engagement. Secondly, the depth and genuine care that Russell displayed for nurturing balanced students. Those are the students that possess the discipline and the creativity to overcome the challenges in the future. And finally, his call to have the bravery to step into that rocket, to stay calm under pressure. If you want to explore evaluation in more depth, we have five new courses available on our website for you to check out. Thanks for listening to Creatable Future. Leave us a review and let us know what you liked, what you didn't like, and what you'd like more of. Reviews help us reach more listeners so that we can keep bringing you more awesome conversations. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can keep up to date with each episode as they come out. If you want to hear more about how Creatable is connecting schools with industry through our professional learning library, head to creatablefuture.com. This episode was recorded on Darawal and Darug country. Catch you next week.